Section 15 of The Golden Bough, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 18, Part 2. Thus the Roman monarchy may have combined the hereditary with the elective principle. Thus the mere circumstance that all the Roman kings, with the exception of the two Tarquins, appear to have belonged to different families, is not of itself conclusive against the view that hereditary was one of the elements which determined the succession. The number of families from whom the king might be elected may have been large, and even if, as is possible, the electors were free to choose a king without any regard to his birth, the hereditary prince would still be maintained if, as we have seen reason to conjecture, it was essential for the chosen candidate should marry a woman of the royal house, who would generally be either the daughter or the widow of his predecessor. In this way, the apparently disparate principles of unfettered election and strict hereditary would be combined. The marriage of the elected king with the hereditary princess would furnish a link between the two, and as such a system, to put it otherwise, the kings are elective and the queens hereditary. This is just the converse of what happens under a system of male kinship, where the kings are hereditary and the queens elective. The king was probably nominated either by his predecessor or by an interim king. In later times of Rome, it was held that the custom had been for the people to elect the kings and for the senate to ratify the election. But we may suspect, with Momsen, that this was no more than inference from the mode of electing the consuls. The magistrates who, are the Republic, representing the kings most closely were the dictator and the king of the sacred rites, and neither of these was elected by the people. Both were nominated, the dictator by the council and the king of the sacred rites by the chief pontiff. Accordingly, it seems probable that under the monarchy the king was nominated either by his predecessor or, failing that, by interim king, interrex, chosen from the senate. Now if, as we have been led to think, an essential claim to the throne was constituted by marriage with the princess of the royal house. Nothing could be more natural than that the king should choose his successor, who would commonly be also his son-in-law. If he had several sons-in-law and admitted the designate the ones who had reigned after him, the election would be made by his substitute, the interim king. Personal qualities which commend man for marriage with a princess as accession to the throne. The personal qualities which recommend a man for a royal alliance as accession to the throne will naturally vary accordingly to the popular ideas of the time and the character of the king or his substitute, but it is reasonable to suppose that among them, in early society, physical strength and beauty would hold a prominent place. We have seen that in Ashanti, the husbands or paramours of the princesses must always be men of fine presence, because they are to be the fathers of future kings. Among the Ethiopians in antiquity, as among the Ashantis and many other African tribes to this day, the crown passed in the female line to the son of the king's sister. But if there was no such heir, they chose the handsomest and most valiant man to reign over them. Fat Kings We are told that the Gordioi elected the fattest man to the kingship, nor is this incredible when we remember that in Africa, Corpulence is still regarded as a great distinction of beauty, and that both the chiefs and their wives are sometimes so fat that they can hardly walk. Thus among the Kafirs, 
chiefs and rich men attained to an enormous bulk, and the queens fattened themselves on beef and porridge, of which they partake freely in the intervals of slumber. To be fat is with them a mark of riches, and therefore of high rank. Common folk cannot afford to eat and drink and lounge as much as they would like to. Long-headed kings and chiefs the Siroquois in antiquity are reported to have bestowed the crown on the tallest man, or on the man with the longest head, in the literal, not the figurative sense of the word. They seem to have been a Samaritan people to the north of the Caucasus, and are probably the same with the long-headed people described by Hippocrates, who says that among them, the men with the longest heads are esteemed and noblest, and that they apply bandages and other instruments to their heads to their children in infancy, for the sake of moulding them into the shape which they admired. Such reports are probably by no means fabulous, for among the Monbutu or Mangbetu of Central Africa, down to this day, when the children of chiefs are young, string is wound round their heads which are gradually compressed into a shape that will allow the longest head dress. A skull thus treated in childhood takes the appearance of an elongated egg. Heads artificially moulded as a mark of high rank. Similarly, some of the Indian tribes in the northwest coast of America artificially mould the heads of their children into the shape of a wedge or a sugar loaf by compressing them between boards. Some of them regard such heads as a personal beauty, others as a mark of high birth. For instance, the practice among some of the Salish seems to have had a definite social as well as aesthetic significance. There appear to have been recognised degrees of contortion marking the social status of the individual, for example, slaves, of which the Salish kept considerable numbers, were prohibited from deforming the heads of their children at all. Consequently, a normal undeformed head was a sign and badge of servitude. In the case of the base-born of the tribes, the heads of their children were customarily but slightly deformed, while the heads of the children born of wealthy or noble persons, and particularly those of chiefs, were severely and excessively deformed. Among the Borurus, the best singers are the chiefs. Among the Borurus of Brazil, at the present day, the title of chieftaincy is neither corpulence nor an egg-shaped head, but the possession of a fine musical ear and a rich baritone, bass or tenor voice. The best singer, in fact, becomes a chief. There is no other way for supreme power but this. Hence, in the education of Bororo youth, main things to train, not their minds, but their voices for the best of the Tunku choir will certainly be chief. In this tribe, accordingly, there is no such thing as hereditary chieftainship, for if the son of a chief has an indifferent ear or a poor voice, he will be a commoner to the end of his days. When two rival songsters are found in the same village, they sing against each other, and he who is judged to have acquitted himself best in the musical contest mounts the throne. His defeated rival sometimes retires in a huff with his admirers and founds a new village. Once seated in the place of power, the melodious singer is not only highly honoured and respected, but can exact unconditional obedience from all, and he gives his orders, like an operatic king or hero, in a musical recitavio. He is especially at eventide, when the sun has set and the labours of the day are over, that he pours out his soul in harmony, and that witching hour he takes up his post in front of the men's clubhouse, and while his subjects are hushed in attention, he bursts into sacred song, passing from the lighter themes, and concluding the oratio by chanting his commands to each other for the next day. When Addison ridiculed the new fashion of the Italian opera, 
in which generals sang the word of command ladies delivered their messages in music and lovers chanted their billet dogs he little suspected that among the backwoods of brazil a tribe of savages in all seriousness preserved a custom which he thought absurd even on the stage succession to the throne determined by a race sometimes apparently the right to the hand of the princess and to the throne has been determined by a race the Altinian libyans awarded the kingdom to the fleetest runner among the old prussians candidates for nobility raced on horseback to the king and the one who reached him first was ennobled according to tradition the earliest games at olympia were held at endymion who set his sons to run a race for the kingdom his turn was said to be at the point of the race course for which the runners started greek traditions of princesses whose hands were won in a race the famous story of pelops and hippodamia is perhaps only another version of the legend that the first races at olympia were run for no less a prize than a kingdom for oenomaus was king of pisa a town close to olympia and having warned by an oracle that he would die by the hand of the man who married his daughter hippodamia he resolved to keep her a maid so when any one came a wooing her the king made the suitor drive away in a chariot with hippodamia while he himself pursued the pair in another car drawn by fleet horses and overtaking the unlucky white slew him in this way he killed twelve suitors and nailed their heads to his house the ruins of which were shown at olympia down to the second century of our era the bodies of the suitors were buried under a lofty mound and it is said that in former days sacrifices were offered to them yearly when pelops came to win the hand of hippodamia he bribed the charioteer of oenomos not to put the pins into the wheels of the king's chariot so oenomos was thrown from the car and dragged by his horses to death but some say he was dispatched by pelops according to the oracle anyhow he died and pelops made a hippodamia and succeeded to the kingdom the grave of onomos was shown to olympia it was a mound of earth enclosed with stones here two precincts were dedicated to pelops and hippodamia in which sacrifices were offered to them annually the victim presented to pelops was a black ram whose blood was poured into a pit other traditions were current in antiquity of princesses who were offered in marriage to the fleetest runner and won by the victor in the race thousicorus at sparta set the wooers of his daughter penelope to run a race ulysses won and wedded her his father-in-law is said to have tried to induce him to take up his abode in sparta which seems to show that if ulysses had accepted the invitation he would have inherited the kingdom through his wife so too the libyan king Antaeus placed his beautiful daughter Bars or Alcius at the end of the race course. Her many notable suitors, both Libyans and foreigners, ran to her as the goal, and Alcadimus, who touched her first, gained her in marriage. Danaeus, also at Argos, is said to have stationed his many daughters at the goal, and the runner who reached them first had first choice of the maidens. Somewhat different from these traditions is the story of Atalante for in it the wooers are said to have contended not with each other but with the coy maiden herself in a foot race she slew her vanquished suitors and hung up their heads in the race course till hippomemes gained the race and her hand by throwing down the golden apples which he stood to pick up custom of racing for a bride among the kirgiz and kalmaks these traditions may very well reflect a real custom of racing for a bride such a custom appears to have prevailed among various peoples though in practice it is degenerated into a mere formal pretense 
Thus there is one race called the Love Chase, which may be considered a part of the form of marriage among the Kyrgyz. In this, the bride, armed with a formidable whip, mounts a fleet horse, and is pursued by all the young men who make any pretensions to her hand. She will be given as a prize to the one who catches her, but she has the right, besides urging on her horse to the utmost, to use her whip, often with no main force, to keep off those lovers who are unwelcome to her, and she will probably favour the one whom she has already chosen in her heart. As, however, by Kyrgyz custom, a suitor to the hand of a maiden is obliged to give a certain kalium, or purchase money, and an agreement must be made with the father for the amount of dowry which he gives his daughter. The love chase is a mere matter of form. Similarly, the ceremony of marriage among the Kalmuks is performed on horseback. A girl is first mounted who rides off in full speed. Her lover pursues, and he, he overtakes her, she becomes his wife, and the marriage is consummated on the spot, after which she returns with him to his tent. Custom of racing for a bride among the Kalmuks and some tribes of the Malay Peninsula. But it sometimes happens that the woman does not wish to marry the person by whom she is pursued, in which she will not suffer him to overtake her. And we were assured that no instance occurs of a Kalmuk girl being thus caught unless she has a partiality for her pursuer. If she dislikes him, she rides, to use the language of English sportsmen, neck or nothing, until she has completely escaped, or until the pursuer's horse is tired out, leaving her at liberty to return, to be afterwards chased by some more favoured admirer. The race for the bride is found also among the Kordiaks of northeastern Asia. It takes place in a large tent, round which may separate compartments called pologs are arranged in a continuous circle. The girl gets a start and is clear of the marriage if she can run through all the compartments without being caught by the bridegroom. The women of the encampment place every obstacle in the man's way, tripping him up, belaboring him with switches and so forth, so that he has little chance of succeeding unless the girl wishes it and waits for him. Among some of the rude indigenous tribes of the Malay Peninsula, marriage is preceded by a singular ceremony. An old man presents the future couple to the assembled guests, and, followed by their families, he leads them to a great circle round which the girl sets off to run as fast as she can. If the young man succeeds in overtaking her, she becomes his mate. Otherwise, he loses all rights, which happens especially when he is not so fortunate as to please his bride. Another writer tells us that among these savages, when there is a river at hand, the race takes place on the water, the bride paddling away in one canoe and pursued by the bridegroom in another. Kafir Race for Bride Before the wedding procession starts for the bridegroom's hut, a Kafir bride is allowed to make one last bid for freedom, and a young man is told off to catch her. Should he fail to do so, she is theoretically allowed to return to her father, and the whole performance has to be repeated, but the flight of the bride is usually a pretense. The bride race among Teutonic peoples and its traces in modern Europe. Similar customs appear to have been practiced by all the Teutonic peoples, for the German, Anglo-Saxon and North languages possess in common a word for marriage which means simply bride race. Moreover, traces of the custom survived into modern times. Thus the mark of Brandenburg, down to the first half of the 19th century at least, 
it was a practice for bride and bridegroom to run a race on their wedding day in presence of all the guests two sturdy men took the bride between them and set off the bridegroom gave them a start then followed hotfoot at the end of the course stood two or three young married women who took from the bride her maiden's crown and placed it by the matron's cap if the bridegroom failed to overtake his bride he was much ridiculed in other parts of germany races are still held in marriage but the competitors are no longer the bride and bridegroom thus in Hesse, at the wedding of a well-to-do farmer his friends race on horseback to the house of the bride and friends similarly race on horseback to the house of the bridegroom the prize hangs over the gate of the farmyard or the door of the house it consists of a silken or woolen handkerchief which the winner winds round his head or fastens to his breast victors have also the right to escort the marriage possession in upper bavaria down at least as some fifty years ago a regular feature of a rustic wedding used to be what was called the bride race or the key race it generally took place when the bridal party was proceeding from the church to the alehouse a course was marked out and two goals consisting of heaps of straw were set up at distances of three and four hundred yards respectively the strongest and fleetest of the young fellows raced barefoot clad only in shirt and trousers he who first reached the further goal received the first prize this was regularly a key of gilt wood which the winner fastened to his hat often as in some of the greek legends the bride herself was a goal of the race the writers who record the custom suggest that the race was originally for the key of the bride chamber and the bridegroom ran with the rest in scotland also the guests at a rustic wedding used to ride on horseback for a prize which sometimes consisted of the bride's cake set up on a pole in front of the bridegroom's house the race was known as the bruise at widensfield in carinthia a festival called the bride race is still held every year it is popularly supposed to commemorate a time when a plague had swept away the whole people except a girl and three young men these three it is said raced with each other in order that the winner might get the maiden to wife and so repeopled the land the race is now held on horseback the winner receives a prize a garland of flowers called the bride wreath and the man who comes in last gets a wreath of ribbons and pig's bristles it seems not impossible that this custom is a relic of a fair at which the marriageable maidens of the year were assigned an order of merit to the young men who distinguished themselves by their feats of strength and agility assignment of brides to pick young men among the samnites a practice of this sort appears to have prevailed among the ancient samnites every year the youths and maidens were tested publicly and the young man who was adjudged best had first choice of the girls the second best had the next choice and so on with the rest they say writes strabo that the samnites had a beautiful custom which incites to virtue for they may not give their daughters in marriage to whom they please but every year the ten best maidens and the ten best youths are picked out and the best of the ten maidens is given to the best of the ten youths and the second to the second and so on but if the man who wins one of these prizes should afterwards turn out a knave they disgrace him and take the girl from him the nature of the test to which the young men and women were subjected is not mentioned but we may conjecture that it was mainly athletic contest for a bride other than races the contest for a bride may be designed to try the skill strength and courage of the suitors as well as their horsemanship and speed of foot speaking of king's country ireland in the latter part of the eighteenth century arthur young says there is a very ancient custom here for a number of country neighbours among the poor people to fix upon some young woman that ought as they think to be married 
they also agree upon a young fellow as a proper husband for her this determined they send to the fair once cabin to inform her that on the sunday following she is to be hoist that is carried on men's backs she must then provide whiskey and cider for a treat as all will pay her a visit after mass for a hurling match as soon as she is hoist the hurling begins in which the young fellow appointed for her husband has the eyes of all the company fixed on him if he comes off conqueror he is certainly married to the girl but if another is victorious he as certainly loses her for she is a prize of the victor these trials are not always finished in one sunday they take sometimes two or three and the common expression when they are over is that such a girl was gold sometimes one barony hurls against another but a magical girl is always a prize contest for a bride hurling is a sort of cricket but instead of throwing the ball in order to knock down a wicket the aim is to pass it through a bent stick the end stuck in the ground in the great indian epic the mahabharata is related that the hand of the lovely princess Draupadi or krishna daughter of the king of panchalas was only to be won by him who could bend a certain mighty bow and shoot five arrows through a revolving wheel so as to hit the target beyond after many noble wooers had essayed the task in vain the disguised origin was successful and carried off the princess to be the wife of himself and his four brothers the indian surveyan marva this was instanced in the ancient indian practice of surveyan marva in accordance with which a maiden of high rank either chose her husband from among her assembled suitors or was offered as a prize to the conqueror of a trial of skill the custom was occasionally observed among the Rajputs down to a late time the tartar king Saidu, the cousin and opponent of kublai khan is said to have had a beautiful daughter named Ajaruk, or the bright moon who was so tall and brawny that she outdid all men in her father's realm of feats of strength she vowed she would never marry till she found a man who could vanquish her in wrestling many noble suitors came and tried to fall with her but she threw them all and from every one whom she had overcome she exacted a hundred horses in this way she collected an immense stud in the nibelungen lead the fair brunhild queen of iceland was only to be won by marriage by him who could beat her in three trials of strength and the unsuccessful wooers forfeited their heads many had thus perished but at the last gunther king of the burgundians vanquished and married her it is said that Sithon, king of the Odomanti Thrace, had a lovely daughter, Pelene, and that many men came a-wooing her not only from Thrace, but from Illyria and the country of the Don. But her father said that he who would wed his daughter must first fight himself and pay with his life the penalty of defeat. Thus he slew many young men. But when he was grown old and his strength had failed, he set two of the wooers, by names Dryas and Cletus, to fight each other for the kingdom and the hand of the princess the combat was to take place in chariots but the princess being in love with clitius bribed his rival's charioteer to put no pins in the wheels of his chariot so dryas came to the ground and clitus slew him and married the king's daughter the tale agrees closely with that of pelops and hippodamia both stories probably contain in a legendary form reminiscences of a real custom he besides Sicyon and how he danced away his marriage Within historical times, Clisthenes, Tarnus Sicyon, made public proclamation at the Olympian Games 
they would give his daughter agarist in marriage to that suitor who during a year's trial should prove himself the best so many young men who pride themselves on their persons and on their lineage assembled at Sukion from all parts of the greek world the tyrant had a race course and a wrestling school made on purpose for them and there he put them through their paces of all the suitors none pleased him so much as hippoglides the handsomest and richest man of athens a scion of the old princely house of Sibsellus. and when the year was up and the day had come on which the award was to be made the tyrant sacrificed a hundred oxen and entertained the suitors of all the people at Sukion at a splendid banquet dinner being over the wine went round and the suitors fell to wrangling as to their accomplishments and their wit in this feast of reason the gay hippoclides outshot himself and then all until flushed with triumph and liquor he jumped on a table danced to music and then as a finishing touch stood on his head and sawed the air with his legs this was too much the tyrant of disgust told him he had danced away his marriage the annual flight of the king regifurium at rome may have been a relic of his contest for the kingdom and for the hand of the princess thus it appears that the right to marry a girl and especially a princess has often been conferred as a prize in athletic contest there would be no reason therefore for surprise the roman kings before bestowing their daughters in marriage should resort to this ancient node of testing the personal qualities of their future sons-in-law and successors if my theory is correct the roman king and queen personated jupiter as divine consort in the character of these divinities went through the annual ceremony of a sacred marriage for the purpose of causing the crops to grow and men and cattle to be fruitful and multiply thus they did what in more northern lands we may suppose a king and queen of may are believed to do in days of old now we have seen that the right to play the part of the king of may and to wed the queen of may has sometimes been determined by the athletic contest particularly by a race this may have been a relic of an old marriage custom of the sort we have examined a custom designed to test the fitness of a candidate for matrimony such a test might reasonably apply with peculiar rigour to the king in order to ensure that no personal defect should incapacitate him for the performance of those sacred rites and ceremonies on which even more than despatch of his civil and military duties the safety and prosperity of the community were believed to depend and it would be natural to require of him that from time to time he should submit himself afresh to the same ordeal for the sake of publicly demonstrating that he was still equal to the discharge of his high calling a relic of that test perhaps survived in the ceremony known as the flight of the king regifugium which continued to be annually observed at rome down to imperial times on the twenty-fourth day of february a sacrifice used to be offered in the comitium and when it was over the king of the sacred rites fled from the forum we may conjecture that the flight of the king was originally a race for an annual kinship which may have been awarded as a prize to the fleetest runner at the end of the year the king might run again for a second term of office and so on until he was defeated and deposed or perhaps slain in this way what had once been a race would tend to assume the character of a flight and a pursuit the king would be given a start he ran his competitors ran after him and if he were overtaken he had to yield the crown and perhaps his life to the lightest of foot among them in time a man of masterful character might succeed in sitting himself permanently on the throne and reducing the animal race or flight to the empty form which it seems always to have been within historical times the rite was sometimes interpreted as a commemoration of the expulsion of the kings from rome but this appears to have been a mere afterthought devised to explain a ceremony of which the old meaning was forgotten it is far more likely that in acting thus the king of the sacred rites was merely caving up an ancient custom which in the regal period had been annually observed 
by his predecessors, the kings. Where the original intention of the rite may have been must probably always remain more or less a matter of conjecture. The present explanation is suggested with a full sense of the difficulty and obscurity in which the subject is involved. The theory is confirmed by the evidence that at Saturnalia a man used to personate the god Saturn and be put to death in that character. Thus, if my theory is correct, the yearly flight of the Roman king was a relic of a time when the kingship was an annual office awarded, along with the hand of a princess, to the victorious athlete or gladiator, who thereafter figured along with his bride as a god and a goddess at a sacred marriage designed to ensure the fertility of the earth by homeopathic magic. Now, this theory is to a certain extent remarkably confirmed by an ancient account of the Saturnalia, which was discovered and published some years ago by a learned Belgian scholar, Professor Franz Cumont of Ghent. From that account, we learn that down to the beginning of the fourth century of our era, that is, down nearly to the establishment of Christianity by Constantine, the Roman soldiers stationed on the Danube were wont to celebrate the Saturnalia in a barbarous fashion, which must certainly have dated from a very remote antiquity. Thirty days before the festival, they chose by lot from among themselves a young and handsome man, who was dressed in royal robes to resemble the god Saturn. In that character, he was allowed to indulge all his passions to the fullest extent, but when his brief reign of thirty days was over and the festival of Saturn was come, he had to cut his own throat on the altar of the god he personated. We can hardly doubt that this tragic figure, whom a fatal lot doomed to masquerade for a short time as a deity and to die as such a violent death, was the true original of the merry monarch or king of the Saturnalia, as he was called, whom a happy lot invested with the playful dignity of master of the winter revels. In all probability, the grim predecessor of the frolicsome king of the Saturnalia belonged to that class of puppets who in some countries have been suffered to reign nominally for a few days each year merely for the sake of discharging a burdensome or fatal obligation which otherwise might have fallen on the real king. If that is so, we may infer that the part of the god Saturn, who was commonly spoken of as a king, was formerly played at the Saturnalia by the Roman king himself and a trace of the sacred marriage may perhaps be detected in a license according to the human representatives of Saturn, a license which, if I am right, is strictly analogous to the old orgies of May Day and other similar festivals. Saturn, the god of seed, and the Saturnalia, a festival of sowing. It is to be observed that Saturn was the god of the seed, and the Saturnalia, the festival of sowing, held in December, when the autumn sowing was over, and the husbandman gave himself up to a season of jollity after the long labours of summer and autumn. On the principles of homeopathic magic, nothing could be more natural than that. When the last seeds had been committed to the earth, the marriage of the powers of vegetation should be simulated by their human representatives for the purpose of sympathetically quickening the seed. In short, no time could be more suitable for the celebration of the sacred marriage. We have seen as a matter of fact that the sowing of the seed has often been accompanied by sexual orgies with the express intention of thereby promoting the growth of the crops. At all events, the view that the king's flight at Rome was a mitigation of an old custom of putting him to death at the end of the year's tenure of office is confirmed by the practice of annually slaying a human representative of the divine king Saturn, which survived in some parts of the Roman Empire, through not at Rome itself, down to Christian times. 
in the latin kings were begotten at the licentious festival of the saturnalia we can understand why their paternity was sometimes uncertain and why they might be of servile parentage this theory would throw light on some dark passages in the legends of roman kingship such as the obscure and humble births of certain kings and their mysterious ends for if the sacred marriage took place at a licentious festival like the saturnalia when slaves were temporarily granted the privileges of free men it might well be that the paternity of the children begotten at this time including those of the royal family was a matter of uncertainty nay it might be known that the king or queen had offspring by a slave such offspring of a royal father and a slave mother or of a royal mother and a slave father would rank as princes and princesses according as male or female kinship prevailed under a system of male kinship the union of the king with a slave woman would give birth to a servius tullius and according to one tradition to a romulus if female kinship prevailed in the royal family as we have seen reason to suppose it is possible that the stories of the birth of romulus and servius from slave mothers is a later inversion of the facts and that what really happened was that some of the old latin kings were begotten by slave fathers or royal princesses at the festival of saturnalia the disappearance of female kinship would suffice to account for the warping of the tradition all that was distinctly remembered would be that some of the kings had had a slave for one of their parents and people living under a system of paternal descent would naturally conclude that the slave parent of a king could only be the mother since according to the ideas no son of a slave father could be of royal blood and sit on the throne the violent ends of the roman kings again if i am right in supposing that in very early times the old latin kings personated a god and were regularly put to death in that character we can better understand the mysterious or violent ends to which so many of them are said to have come too much stress should not however be laid on such legends for in a turbulent state of society kings like commoners are apt to be knocked on the head for such sounder reasons than a claim to divinity death of romulus on the seventh of july the nonne caprotine at a festival resembling the saturnalia still it is worth while to note that romulus is said to have vanished mysteriously like aeneas or to have been cut to pieces by the patricians whom he had offended and that the seventh of july the day on which he perished was a festival which bore some resemblance to the saturnalia for on that day the female slaves were allowed to take certain remarkable liberties they dressed up as free women in the attire of matrons and maids and in this guise they went forth from the city scoffed and jeered at all whom they met and engaged among themselves in a fight striking and throwing stones at each other moreover they feasted under wild victory made use of a rod cut from the tree for a certain purpose perhaps to beat each other with and offered the milky juice of the tree in sacrifice to juno copratina whose name appears to mean either the goddess of the goat caper or the goddess of the wild fig tree for the romans called a wild fig tree a goat fig caprificus the nonne caprotine seems to have been the festival of the fertilization of the fig hence the day was called the nonne caprotine after the animal or the tree the festival was not peculiar to rome but was held by women throughout latium it can hardly be disassociated from a custom which was observed by ancient husbandmen at the season they sought to fertilize the fig trees or ripen the figs by hanging strings of fruit from a wild fig tree among the boughs 
the practice appears to be very old it has been employed in greece both in ancient and modern times roman writers often refer to it palladius recommends a solstice in june that is midsummer day as the best time for the operation columelia prefers july in sicily at the present day the operation performed either on midsummer day the festival of st john the baptist or the early days of july in morocco and north africa generally it takes place on midsummer day the wild fig tree is a male and the cultivated fig tree is a female and the fertilization is effected by insects which are engendered in the fruit of the male tree and convey the pollen to the blossom of the female thus the placing of wild figs laden with pollen and insects among the boughs of the cultivated fig tree is like the artificial fertilization of the date palm a real marriage of the trees and it may well have been regarded as such by the peasants of antiquity long before the true theory of the process was discovered importance of the fig as an article of diet now the fig is an important article of diet in countries bordering on the mediterranean in palestine for example the fruit is not as with us merely an agreeable luxury but is eaten daily and forms indeed one of the stable productions of the country to sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree was a regular jewish expression for the peaceable possession of the holy land and the fable of jotham the fig tree is invited by the other trees next to the olive to come and reign over them when sandanus the lydian attempted to dissuade croesus from marching against the persians he represented to him that there was nothing to be gained by conquering the inhabitants of a barren country an arab commentator on the koran observes that god swears by these two trees the fig and the olive because among fruit trees they surpass all the rest they relate that a basket of figs is offered to the prophet muhammad and when he had eaten one he bade his commerce do the same saying truly if i were to say that any fruit had come down from paradise i would say it of the fig and it would be natural that a process supposed to be essential to the ripening of so favoured a fruit should be the occasion of a popular festival we may suspect that the license allowed to slave women on this day formed part of an ancient saturnalia at which the loose behaviour of men and women was supposed to secure the fertilization of the fig trees by homeopathic magic at the festival of the seventh of july women were probably thought to be fertilized by the fig as well as to fertilize it but it is possible and indeed probable that the fertilization was believed to be mutual in other words it may have been imagined and while the women caused the fig tree to bear fruit a tree in its turn caused them to bear children this conjecture is confirmed by a remarkable african parallel the acucule of british east africa attributed to the wild fig tree the power of fertilizing barren women supposed fertilization of barren women by the wild fig tree among the acucule of british east africa for this purpose they apply the white sap or milk to various parts of the body of the would-be mother then having sacrificed a goat they tie the women to a fig tree with long strips cut from the intestines of the sacrificial animal this seems writes mr c w hobley who reports a custom to be a case of the tree marriage of india i fancy there is an idea of ceremonial marriage with the ancestral spirits which are said to inhabit certain of these fig trees in fact it supports the camber idea of the spiritual husbands the belief in spiritual husbands to which mr hobley here briefly refers is as follows the akamba of british east africa imagine that every married woman is at the same time the wife of a living man and also the wife of the spirit of some departed ancestor Amu. 
they are firmly convinced that the fertility of a wife depends to a great extent on the attentions of her spiritual husband and if she does not conceive within six months after marriage they take it as a sign that her spiritual husband is neglecting her so they offer beer and kill a goat as a propitiatory sacrifice if after the woman still remains barren they make a bigger feast and kill a bullock on the other hand if a wife is found to be with child soon after marriage they are glad and consider it a proof that she has found favour in the eyes of her ghostly husband belief of the okamba that the spirits of the dead live in wild victories further they believe that at death the human spirit quits the bodily frame and takes up its abode in a wild fig tree mumbo hence they build miniature huts at the foot of those fig trees which are thought to be haunted by the souls of the dead and they periodically sacrifice these spirits accordingly we may conjecture that we are not told that amongst the akamba as among the akikyu a barren woman sometimes resorts to a wild fig tree in order to obtain a child since she believes that her spiritual spouse has his abode in the tree the akukuyu clearly attribute a special power of fertilization to the milky sap of the tree since they apply it to various parts of the women who desire to become a mother perhaps they regard it as the seed of the fig this may explain why the roman slave women offered the milky juice of the tree to juno capratina they may have intended thereby to add to the fecundity of the mother goddess and we can scarcely doubt that the rods which they cut from the wild fig tree for the purpose apparently of beating each other were supposed to communicate the generative virtue of the tree to the women who were struck by them suppose fertilization of women by the wild banana tree among the Buganda. the Buganda of central africa appear to ascribe the wild banana tree the same power of removing barrenness which the akuku attribute to the wild fig tree for when a wife has no child she and her husband will sometimes repair to a wild banana tree and there standing one on each side of the tree partake of the male organs of a goat the man eating the flesh and drinking the soup and the women drinking the soup only this is believed to ensure conception after the husband has gone in to his wife here again as among the akukuyu we see that the fertilizing virtue of the tree is reinforced by the fertilizing virtue of the goat and we can therefore better understand why the romans called the male wild fig tree goat fig and why the messanians dubbed it simply he-goat the roman king may have celebrated a sacred marriage on the nane caprotine as a charm to make the fig trees bear fruit the association of the death of romulus with a festival of the wild fig tree can hardly be accidental especially as he and his twin brother remus were said to have been suckled by the she-wolf under a fig tree the famous ficus ruminalis which was shown in the forum as one of the sacred objects of rome and receiving offerings of milk down to late times indeed some have gone so far both in ancient and modern times as to derive the names of romulus and rome itself from this fig tree ficus ruminalis here they are right romulus was the fig man and rome the fig town be that as it may the clue to the association of romulus with a fig is probably furnished by the old belief that the king was responsible for the fruits of the earth and the rain from heaven we may conjecture that on this principle the roman king was expected to make fig trees blossom and bear figs and that in order to do so he masqueraded as the god of the fig tree and went through a form of sacred marriage either with his queen or with the slave woman on july day with the husbandman resorted to more efficacious means of producing the same results the ceremony of the sacred marriage need not have been restricted to a single day in the year 
it may well have been repeated for many different crops and fruits. If the Queen of Athens was annually married to the God of the Vine, why should not the King of Rome have annually wedded the God of the Fig? The marriage of the divine king or human god often followed by his death. But as we have seen, Romulus, the first king of Rome, is said to have perished on this day of this festival of the fig, which, if our hypothesis is correct, was also the day of his ceremonial marriage to the tree. That the real date of his death should have been preserved by tradition is very improbable. Rather, we may suppose that the reason for dating his death and his marriage on the same day were drawn from some ancient ritual which the two events were actually associated. But we have still to ask, why should the king's wedding day be also the day of his death? The answer must be deferred for the present. What we need to say now is that elsewhere, the marriage of the divine king or human god has been regularly followed at a brief interval by his violent end. For him, as for others, death often treads on the heels of love. Violent ends of Tedius, Tullius Hostilius, and other Roman kings. Another Roman king who perished by violence was Tertius, the Sabaean colleague of Romulus. It is said that he was at Latvidium, offering a public service to the ancestral gods, when some men to whom he had given umbrage dispatched him with the sacrificial knives and spits which they had snatched from the altar. The occasion and the manner of his death suggests that the slaughterer may have been a sacrifice rather than an assassination. Again, Tullius Hostilius, the ancestor of Numa, was commonly said to have been killed by lightning, but many held that he was murdered at the instigation of Ancus Marcius, who reigned after him. Speaking of the more or less mythical Numa, the type of the priestly king, Plutarch observes that his fame was enhanced by the fortunes of the latter kings, for of the five who reigned after him, the last was deposed and ended his life in exile, and of the remaining four, not one died a natural death, for three of them were assassinated, and Talus Hostilius was consumed by thunderbolts. This implies that King Angus Marcius, as well as Tarquin the Elder and Servius Tullius, perished by the hands of an assassin. No other ancient historian, so far as I know, records this of Angus Marcius, though one of them says that the king was carried off by an untimely death. Tarquin the Elder was slain by two murderers whom the sons of his predecessor, Ancus Marcius, had hired to do the deed. Lastly, Servius Tullius came by his end in circumstances which recall the combat for the priesthood Diana at Nemi. He was attacked by his successor and killed by his orders, though not by his hand. Moreover, he lived among the oak groves of the Esquiline Hill, at the head of the slope of Verbius, and it was here, beside a sanctuary of Diana, that he was slain. The succession to the Latin kingship may sometimes have been decided by single combat. These legends of the violent ends of the Roman kings suggest that the contest by which they gained the throne may sometimes have been a mortal combat rather than a race. If that were so, the analogy which we have traced between Rome and Emi would still be closer. At both places the sacred kings, the living representatives of the godhead, would thus be liable to suffer deposition and death at the hand of any resolute man who could prove his divine right to the holy office by the strong arm and the sharp sword. It would not be surprising if among the early Latins the claim to the kingdom should often have been settled by single combat, for down to historical times the Umbrians regularly submitted their private disputes to the ordeal of battle, and he who cut his adversary's throat was thought thereby to have proved the justice of his cause beyond the reach of cavail. 
Anyone who remembers how, in the forest of Westphalia, the femme gericht set the modern civil law at defiance down into the eighteenth century, and how in the mountains of Corsica and Sardinia, blood revenge has persisted and persists to our own days, will not wonder that hardly a century after the union of Italy, the Roman legislation had not yet succeeded in putting down the last relics of this ancient Italian, or other Indo-European mode of doing justice, in the nests of the Apennines. Combats for the Kingdom in Africa A parallel to what I conceive to have been the rule of the old Latin kingship is furnished by a West African custom of today. When the Maluango, or King of Angol, who is deemed the representative of God on earth, has been elected, he has to take his stand at Nakumbi, a large tree near the entrance to his sacred ground. Here, encouraged by one of his ministers, he must fight all rivals who present themselves to dispute his right to the throne. This is one of the many instances in which the rites and legends of ancient Italy are illustrated by the practice of modern Africa. Similarly, among the Banyoro of Central Africa, whose king had to take his life with his own hand whenever his health and strength began to fail, the succession to the throne was determined by a mortal combat among the clans, who fought till only one of them was left alive. Even in England, a relic of a similar custom survived till lately in the coronation ceremony, at which a champion used to throw down his glove and challenge to mortal combat all who disputed the king's right to the crown. The ceremony was witnessed by Pepys at the coronation of Charles II. In Greece and Italy, kings probably personated Cronus and Saturn, the god of the seed, before they personated Zeus and Jupiter, the god of the oak. In the foregoing inquiry, we have found reason to suppose that the Roman kings personated not only Jupiter, the god of the oak, but Saturn, the god of the seed, and perhaps also the god of the fig tree. The question naturally arises, did they do so simultaneously or successively? In other words, did the same king regularly represent the oak god at one season of the year, the seed god at another, and the fig god at a third? Or were there separate dynasties of oak kings, seed kings, and fig kings, who belonged perhaps to different stocks and reigned at different times? The evidence does not allow us to answer these questions definitely, but tradition certainly points to the conclusion that in Latium, and perhaps in Italy generally, the seed god Saturn was an older deity than the oak god Jupiter, just as in Greece, Cronus appears to precede Zeus. Perhaps Saturn and Cronus were the gods of an old indigenous and agricultural people, while Jupiter and Zeus were the divinities of a ruder invading race, which swarmed down into Italy and Greece from the forests of Central Europe, bringing their wild woodland deities to dwell in more fertile lands, under softer skies, side by side with the gods of the corn and the vine, the olive and the fig. If that was so, we may suppose that before the eruption of these modern barbarians, the old kings of Greece and Italy personated the gods of the fat field and fruitful orchard, and that it was not till after the conquest that their successors learned to pose as a god of the verdant oak and the thundering sky. However, on questions so obscure, we must be content to suspend our judgment. It is unlikely that the student's searchlight will ever pierce the mists that hang over these remote ages. All that we can do is to follow the lines of evidence backward as far as they can be traced, till after growing fainter and fainter they are lost, altogether in the darkness. End of chapter 18, part 2, and end of section 15.